you remember that time when you were blamed for something that you hadn't done? When you were innocent, but you were treated like you were guilty? I wasn't there, (laughs) I don't know, but we've all had a time like that, haven't we? Whether it was when we were a young child or uh, perhaps a time at school or or perhaps something a little bit more serious during our university years or uh, when we're working. Maybe it had to do with a traffic violation that you were accused of. You were treated as if you were guilty, but you were innocent. Can you remember the shock of hearing about the accusation and perhaps feeling like you were trapped, not knowing what you were going to do or how you were going to see that the truth came out. You felt the injustice of it. Perhaps you felt helpless. Maybe anger. In 1996, David Eastman was declared guilty for the murder of AFP Assistant Commissioner Colin Winchester. Been in the media this week, it's been in the media for the last 30 years. He was sentenced to life in prison. And when this week, at retrial, after 19 years locked away, he has been declared innocent. This is not the first time, or even rare, for somebody who had previously been declared to be guilty, has been declared innocent. A special edition of the Time magazine uh, that came out last year reports that in the US there is an average of three prisoners per week who are exonerated. Three prisoners per week in the US are found to be innocent after spending an average of eight years in jail. Four out of every 100 people who are facing the death penalty, four out of 100 are found to be innocent. Two of them after they have been killed. Reflecting on injustice of innocent people condemned, uh, law professor at the University of Michigan, Samuel Gross, says... False convictions wreak havoc in every direction. False convictions mess up lives, mess up families, mess up finances, mess up work opportunities. False convictions wreak havoc in every direction. In John chapter 18 that we've just read, we see havoc in every direction. There's injustice, there's malicious accusation, there's false testimony, there's abuse, there's a rushed decision, there's tainted legal processes. But what John wants us to see most is Jesus' innocence. Amidst the swirling chaos and darkness of injustice shines the light of the world shines through the innocent man, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. What John wants us to see here, though, is that Jesus' innocence is not just a tragic twist in the story for John. 
It's not just here as a literary device to captivate us or to make us feel more for Jesus. Isn't this sad? You see, as much as we want to be confident that Jesus is a real historical person, as much as that we want to be confident that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, we need to be just as confident that He is innocent. You see, because without Jesus' innocence, his death and resurrection are ineffective in his Father's salvation plans for the world. John doesn't make that explicit connection here for us in John 18, and so in a little while we're going to delve off into some other parts of the New Testament, particularly 1 John, which is a sermon that John wrote to a group of churches uh, later on, older in life. But for now, let's look at again at chapter 18 to see very clearly Jesus' innocence. (laughs) Jesus has been meeting with his disciples over the last few chapters. we've, We've been following this meeting where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his mission continuing on his mission after his death and resurrection. And this night is abruptly interrupted by now the danger that Jesus had warned his disciples about. Verse 2 there, mention again of the betrayal. One of his own, Judas, will play a key role in seeing Jesus handed over to those who want him killed. Verse 3, there's this arrival of soldiers and officials, not a peacekeeping force, but this group has been sent to find Jesus from the group who want Jesus dead. It's not safe, it's dangerous, verse 3, they're carrying weapons. Peter must have had a little bit of a wind of of how unsafe this was because we know in verse 10 that, that he was carrying his own weapon. This is not a public relations meeting with Jesus. This is what Jesus has come for. And so even them coming to the garden that night is no surprise for Jesus. Verse 4, Jesus knows all that is going to happen to him. He is the one who goes out and meets them coming and says, who is it that you want? They say that they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus declares, verse 5, who he is. I am. I am. They, they fall back, they're, they're surprised at what he says, perhaps even get a sense of what Jesus is actually saying in his revelation of himself, not just, hey, hey, I'm Jesus over here, but I am. A deliberate claim, a deliberate echo to use God's name, the name in the Old Testament by which God made himself known. When, Moses, when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush and Moses wanted to know, who can I tell you, God, who has sent me to the people to say that I'm going to lead you out? of Egypt, God said, what is his name? I am. All through John's gospel, through Jesus' ministry, Jesus has been saying, I am the light of the world. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am. Jesus makes his deliberate claim to be God. 
than just as he had promised beforehand, verses 8 and 9. In the midst of this danger, in the darkness and the threats, Jesus protects his disciples. Let these guys go. Because Jesus knows what is coming and Jesus will steadily walk the path that the Father has marked out for him. He will drink the cup that is given to him by the Father, verse 11. Again, this is an echo of an Old Testament theme where the cup is the cup of wrath and judgment. The cup of, that God has, has, symbolic cup that God has stored up all of his wrath and anger, his, his righteous response to humanity's rebellion against him. He's going to pour it out in judgment. There's this great Old Testament expectation of that And here on the night before Jesus dies, he says that he is the one who will drink that cup. There's not one part of what we're seeing here that shows that Jesus is guilty, that Jesus is a sinner, but that he is the innocent son who he himself will take the world's guilt. Jesus' innocence, as he's bound and taken away, his innocence stands up under examination from Annas. Annas doesn't really hold an official position amongst the Jews. He was the high priest about 15 years prior to this, Um, and now his son-in-law is the current high priest, but he still holds considerable kind of influence. And I I wonder if he's conducting a kind of pre-trial examination, using his influence and and, and weightiness to, to try and trip Jesus up, try and gather a little bit more evidence, try and get Jesus to say something that might incriminate himself. And this is going on in the midst of soldiers and a commander and, a, and officials and Jesus is under arrest and verse 12, Jesus is bound and even when they get upset with him, verse 22, he's struck. Yet Jesus has nothing to hide. Verse 20, there's no evidence that can stand against Jesus that has not been done in public. So Jesus says, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Jesus is innocent. In the meantime, while Jesus does not hide... And while Jesus is speaking the truth, Peter is outside shrinking into the darkness. When he is asked if he's with Jesus, where Jesus said, I am, Peter says, I am not. When they say, are you Jesus? Jesus says, I am. When they say to Peter, are you with Jesus? I am not. Three times he denies knowing Jesus or having anything to do with Jesus just as Jesus said that Peter would do. Well, from verse 28, after examination by Annas, uh, then there is an official Jewish 
pre-trial with Caiaphas, the high priest. And John doesn't record here the details of that uh, pre-trial. We pick it up in verse 28 that Jesus is brought to the Roman trial then before Pilate. A fair trial here is very unlikely. First of all, to notice in verse 28 that this is going to be rushed. We've got to get this over and done quickly. The Jews want it done and dusted before the Passover Sabbath comes. The, the, the weekly Sabbath is a very important thing in their religious tradition and custom, but this one is a particular standout because it's the Passover one. It's the one where they particularly remember their rescue from Egypt. The painting of blood on the doorposts, the, the plagues and then... Uh, going out through the Red Sea. This is a special Passover for them. They want it done and dusted and Jesus dead before sundown. What a great irony that they are so concerned for their ceremonial uncleanness yet at the same time they're seeking the death of an innocent man. We see in verse 29 that Jesus is handed over without charge. He's been to Annas, he's been to Caiaphas and the Jews are bringing him to Pilate so that he can be declared guilty and put to death yet they don't even have a charge against him. Verse 29, Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Yet they're seeking the death penalty. Verse 31, Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone. The Jews objected. If you read this uh, uh, account from John several times or if you try, and then if you try to, to map it out or if, you ever, if you've ever tried to do this as a, as a stage play or a dramatic reading, one of the things you'll get the sense of is that Pilate is going in and out, in the palace, out of the palace. Jesus is on the inside of the palace where the Jews can't go because if they go into the Roman palace they'll be unclean and then they can't have their Jewish... Uh, their, um, Uh, Sabbath Passover so they're on the outside and here Pilate's going to and fro and to and fro kind of creating this sense that Pilate is being tossed about Uh, he's the representative of Caesar he's the Roman governor who is in charge here who's controlling the action Well, inside with Jesus, Pilate learns who Jesus is and Jesus claims to be the one in control. Though he is the one on trial, though he is the one being treated unjustly, he claims to be the one who is controlling the action. He is the only one that will know what is going to happen by the end of the day. Jesus says that he is a king. Pilate asks, uh, verse 35, am I a Jew? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus says, verse 36, my kingdom 
is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then? said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying, I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus is a king who rules a kingdom that is not of this world, not an alien planet somewhere, but of a kingdom that rules over the world, over all existence, over all eternity. Now this kind of settles Pilate a little bit. He perhaps thinks here that he doesn't have a particularly big problem on his hand. One problem he potentially had was that the Jews were claiming that Jesus was the king of the Jews. But here Jesus isn't claiming to be the king of the Jews. He claims to be the king of a kingdom that's not of this world. And so Pilate's going, well, you don't really have any conflict with the Jews. I can't put you to death because you are the king, claim to be the king of the Jews. And if there's any threat to the kingship of Rome, if there's any threat to Caesar, well, Jesus has kind of dismissed that as well because he says his kingdom, his kingdom is not of the world. He's not claiming a kingship of Rome. So from Pilate's point of view, Jesus is no threat to Caesar. Caesar and Pilate are used to all kinds of gods and deities existing across the universe and in different uh, beings and bodies. And so this is not a particular problem for Pilate. Perhaps Pilate is starting to get a little bit intrigued by who Jesus is and what Jesus is saying. But given the hour of the day and the problematic group that he's got outside, he dismisses it all with the shrug of his shoulders. Verse 38, what is truth? With this, he went out again to the Jews. And he gives his verdict. Verse 38. I find no basis for charge against him. We've known it all along. The Jewish leaders have been trying to hide it. And now Pilate declares it. Jesus is innocent. I can't find a hint of evidence against him. I cannot possibly trump up any kind of charge that will stick. He is innocent. Now Jesus' innocence here is not just a tragic twist in the story for John. As I said earlier, he hasn't written this in just to kind of captivate us and make us feel a little bit more sorry for Jesus. Jesus' innocence is essential in his Father's salvation plans for the world. I quoted the law professor earlier, Samuel Samuel Gross, who says, false convictions wreak havoc in every direction. The Bible says, Jesus' innocence wreaks forgiveness in every direction. 1 Peter chapter 3:18 1 Peter chapter 3:18 says for Christ suffered once 
for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. This is one of those verses that's really good to have underlined in your, me- in your Bible and burned into your memory. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. You see, before God, the Jewish leaders are guilty. They're unrighteous. Before God, Pilate is guilty. He is unrighteous. Before God, Judas is guilty. He is unrighteous. Before God, Peter is guilty. He is unrighteous. Before God, the crowd is guilty. They are unrighteous. Before God, you are guilty. You are unrighteous. Before God, I am guilty. I am unrighteous. There is not one of us here who are right before God. Jesus is perfectly righteous, perfectly right before God because of his innocence. No charge will stand against him. There's not one moment of his life for which he might feel guilty or ashamed or embarrassed. He's not accepted by God just because he is the son, but he is the righteous son. And he goes to the cross dying the death that the unrighteous deserve. He drinks the cup of wrath and judgment that belongs to the unrighteous so that we who are unrighteous might be righteous before God. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. It matters to John and matters to us that Jesus is innocent. If Jesus is not perfectly righteous, then forgiveness of sins is perfectly ineffective. Now across this series... I've been giving you some life plans, some little short, sharp phrases that we might remember each chapter to focus our belief and our behaviour. Here's our life plan for John chapter 18. You know, like a, a game plan, the, the, the coach might encourage team members to, to write something on their strapping that this is going to remember. I'm going to take my jacket off for today's. Here's today's one. It's not a tattoo, it's texter. I'm okay with tattoos, but perhaps some people are not okay with me having a tattoo. This is a texter. R for you. Life plan for John 18, R for you. You might want to take a texter and write it on your own arm or put it in a text message to yourself or, or write it in the margin of the Bible. R for you. Righteous for unrighteous. It needs to shape us in two ways this week and the weeks ahead. Number one, remember that because Jesus is righteous, you are forgiven. Do you want to turn with me please to 1 John chapter 1, 1 John, it's just before the book of Revelation,
John's Gospel is John's eyewitness account of Jesus on earth. 1 John, 2 John and 3 John, written by the same John, is his address to churches and brothers and sisters, believers, those who are lining their lives up with Jesus, what it looks like to be now living it out. Pages stop flicking. Wonderful, you must have found it. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, look at what he says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, and we will, and John knows it, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the one who drinks the cup of God's wrath and judgment. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. When you are aware of sin this week, when sin comes into your life because of your rebellion against God, in those moments when you are reflecting on your sin in confession and repentance... This week and the weeks ahead, when you've fallen again into sin, know Jesus' forgiveness. Never hide from God. Never balk at coming to Jesus for forgiveness. His righteousness covers over your unrighteousness. This is the way that it is going to work out. Because of Jesus, we are accepted by God. Ah, for you. Now the second way to keep this into our minds this week and the weeks ahead, remember that because Jesus is righteous, we are called to righteous living. Still in 1 John, chapter 2, verse 29. Verse 29. If you know that He, Jesus, is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of Him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been known, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let 
anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. This week, when you are faced again with temptation, when you are faced with sin, determine that by God's Holy Spirit working in you, determine to keep lining your life up with Jesus. Are for you. Replace unrighteousness with righteousness. As God's Spirit works in us, one of the things that we can do is to be developing habits of righteousness. So often we need to work hard at doing the right thing, at following a godly pattern of behaviour. But it's true and it works that habits will and can build. When I was being discipled as a young Christian, I'd just moved to uh, Sydney to study at university and a slightly older guy um, uh, grabbed me and, not, not grabbed me, but <laughs> grabbed my life and was helping me to work out what it was to live as a Christian. And one of the questions he would ask me regularly as we met up, he said, how have you sinned this week? As we went along and I'd used up my usual list of sins, I started to say, I think I'm doing quite all right. I think I've done all right this week. And he gave me one little tip. He said, pray for God to show up your sin. Holy dooly, God's kept answering that prayer. <laughs> it just keeps ramping up and up and up and up and up. I've never again been lost for words in confessing my sin. Perhaps you could pray that same prayer that God would show up in your life, your unrighteousness, so that you might be deliberately and purposely replacing it with righteousness. And here's the thing about that. There is no reward in the world round about us for doing that. Almost no one round about you will notice when you've chosen righteousness over unrighteousness. You will get no recognition. You'll get no credit. There is no worldly benefit for replacing unrighteousness with righteousness. Let me get really explicit about this. If you have turned away this week from flirting with someone that you've not married to, no one's going to praise you for that. Young people, if you've turned away from following your, parent, following your friends to obey your parents more, nobody's going to pat you on the back for it. If you've turned away from building an identity in a filtered social media posts, posting glamorous photos on social media, if you've turned away from that, to find your identity more securely in Jesus and in the people who love you. No one's going to praise you for that. If you've turned away from lying to cover over your mistakes at work, you're not going to get a pay rise for that. 
If you've turned away from lust and pornography, almost no one's even going to know that you've done that. All of these things are life plan R for you things. No one is going to, almost no one's going to recognize it. So hear this very clearly. If you've been turning away from those things, if you're determined and you're working at it with God's Spirit working in you, I praise God for His work in your life. Rejoice in it. Right now, as you're reflecting and thinking of that thing, before God, thank you, God. That is a good thing. And keep it up. In the back half of this series through John's Gospel, the series Believe to Life, we've been looking at what life with Jesus looks like. Life that is lined up with Jesus' glory. It's a life of extravagant love. It's a life of extravagant peace. It's a life of extravagant service. It's a life of extravagant unity with Jesus and other believers. It's a life of extravagant mission. It's a life of extravagant righteousness. R for you. Have you written it on your arm yet? Have you got it into your memory? R for you. Remember, because Jesus is righteous, you are forgiven. And because Jesus is righteous, we are called to righteous living too.